You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here. This is The Comedian's Comedian and today we have our fourth or fifth ever non-comedian on the show. We have the brilliant Philippa Perry, psychotherapist, author, speaker, agony aunt and I'm sure loads and loads of other stuff. She is so much fun. What a personality. Really, really enjoyed speaking to Philippa about um, some of her books, her, her books on child rearing and how to stay sane. Child rearing, is that fair? That seems like quite a weird term, doesn't it? We'll talk about authenticity and the authentic self and the different roles she plays when speaking on stage, writing, therapising, not her word, um, and all the other things in between. Um, and we're going to talk about envy and we're going to talk about narcissistic injury and her childhood and uh, her relationship with her parents and how it led her to want to understand how loneliness works and how people work from the inside out. So oh, the inside out sounded weird from the inside, but, but travelling outwards, just how people work. We could leave that. We could leave it at how people work, but we're not going to. We're going to bash on. There's 20 something minutes of uh, extras available to the Insiders Club um, in which Philippa recalls a meeting with Jimmy Carr and a particular aspect of his personality that she found uh, really incredible. Um, we'll talk about how she deals with criticism and trolling. And in the main episode, we go into a little bit about some of my anxieties about my children. And she continues to reassure me about whether or not it's OK to talk about your children on stage as a comic if they have asked you not to. Ooh, that's all available for the insiders uh, at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. You can join for a minimum £2 a month, pay as much as you like, and uh, get all the exclusive extra bits and bobs that are available to you. And it's tons. It's an absolute ton of material now. So, without further ado, here's Philippa Perry. Let's start with our brief Twitter conversation. I think that's as good a starting point as any. Uh, I was uh, about to go on stage. I had about an hour left before I went on stage um, at a murderous gig 
in a rough pub that when I got there, the uh, the promoter said, oh, yes, this is the this is the roughest pub in town X. And so as part of my kind of self-preservation techniques beforehand, I've been a comic for 15 years, Philippa, and I've, I've played rough gigs, but I've also had the luxury during the pandemic of picking and choosing. And, you know, as, as things have come back to normal, I sort of felt like, oh, I'm a bit out of practice for things like this. So I put out a sort of general purpose tweet saying, any other comics out there, have you got any last minute self-preservation tips before going into a murderous environment? You know, give me some give me some frameworks, give me some thought experiments. And you very kindly replied and said, and I don't remember your exact wording. Do you? I don't know. But I usually think in that sort of situation, what we're doing is we're imagining a murderous audience. And I think it's so much better if you go to an audience and think everybody is interesting and attractive everybody is interesting and attractive and pleased to see me and I can't wait to see them and then you haven't got that defensiveness that that an audience can smell so um I think I might have said something like that it was it was yeah I think you said remember all of these people are your friends and they're pleased to see you which said which is a lovely mantra and I think I replied something like Philippa that's very exciting I was I was thrilled that you were replying to my tweet um have you done any stand-up comedy? And you you talked about, you know, I mean, presumably in your work, you are, you are a, a, a therapist, you are a writer, but you also are a live speaker. and you Yeah, you... I do a lot of live talks. Well, I did yeah. before the pandemic anyway. I've only done one since the end of the pandemic. Okay. And um, what happened was, like, you write a book and then that's not the end of it. You have to go on tour and promote it a little bit like a comic, except for instead of comics backstage to talk to, there are other writers. Uh, I okay. don't expect it's that much different, really. And um, I just got the hang of having conversations with audiences. It felt like a sort of dialogue. And then comedy occurred. I didn't do it on purpose, but it sort of happens sometimes because people say something ridiculous or funny or ask me a question that I go, uh-huh, and then that's funny. <laughs> well, this is it, because I wanted to talk to you about your your relationship to comedy. So you're not a, a, a performer. You're, you're a proper person. You've, got uh, a, you've had a proper job. All proper people. Well, uh, I'm deliberately am, being dismissive about... I am about... one too. Um, I'm deliberately being dismissive about performers because I feel I've earned that right. (laughs) I've been a performer my whole life. What I mean is you're a proper person. You didn't desperately kind of shed all of your friendships and social encounters in the pursuit of the adoration of a bunch of strangers. You made some rather more sensible life choices than that. I still want the adoration of a bunch of strangers. Uh Don't we? Okay. I mean, well, you, you tell me. I don't speak to, uh, well, I speak mostly to, to comedians. When I, I, I went on the, um, you know, the book tour circuit, I did a lot of literary festivals. And then uh, there's this uh, promotion company called Fame Productions. And they don't work with literary festivals as such. They put on their own literary festival. And what they do, they say, well, why should you do these uh, literary festivals when you can fill theatres on your own? So... We'll hire a theatre. You don't have to worry about that. Um, we'll split the profits 50-50. Okay. So it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Rather than sort of work for a bottle of wine and thank you so much and get a bunch of flowers from a literary festival, um, you can work for money. 
Yes. Yes. Well, there we are. And and is there part of that equation which attracted you? Obviously, there's this is more useful. You'll maybe sell more books. You'll make more money. But presumably part of that deal is some writers would run a mile from that and go, I don't want to go and kind of well, I found speak out, under my own name. I found out that I enjoyed it. I, okay. in, you know, because the, all the audience are my best friends. They're mm-hmm. my fans, so they've come to see me, not to say, what's she like then, but yes. because they like my work and they like my books and they like my columns, so they come and see me. And uh, so they are all my best friends. So I obviously have a great time with them. When was the first time that you got a sense of, we'll, we'll kind of delve back into the therapist past yeah. and I want to talk to you a, yeah. a bit more about that. But just while we're on the live performance thing, um, when was the first moment that you remember standing up in front of an audience and telling them some of your your gear in stand-up we'd have material or bits and I think probably it's the same oh, for I you don't I've, do I've, that. well I've, I've seen you I've, have go on I, sorry go on. I just feed off the audience okay and I don't have jokes and I don't have anything pre-prepared mm-hmm. this is very unlike a comic that sort of has maybe they don't know where it's going to go but they have a sort of flow chart and they sort of know where it's where it's going to go um so I'm feeding off the audience. And the first time I did something different was that I used to go around and have this spiel talking about this book or that book. But I got bored of doing that because I, I want the to and fro. So I went to, I think it was Waterstones in Milton Keynes. And I had a decent audience of about 50 or 100 or something on the upstairs after the shop had closed. And I said... I talk about dialogue and how it's important to have real dialogue where we impact each other. So why should I stand up here and preach at you? No, ask me what you want to know. And I just went off the back like that. So I started with the Q&A and then I just surfed, surfed the crowd. And I had (laughs) such a good time. I said, that's how I'm going to work from now on. So it was a little bit of an experiment. You know, when you do your little tryouts of your material. Yeah. And then before the pandemic, the last gig I remember doing, I probably did some others, but this was an absolute corker, was at the Sage Centre in Newcastle. And, um, oh, my God, I just loved them. Oh, they were fabulous. And uh, there's two theatres at the stage. One of them is sort of a classic theatre where they all go, you know, it's just like a theatre. And the other one is more like the Globe where you're really close to the audience and they're, they're sort of up in tears like that. And I was in that one. So I felt like I had like, it was quite a huge capacity, but they were all next to me and it was like a little hug. And um, I think what I've learned over the years is it's okay not to know the answers. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say something you've never said before. In fact, it's better if you do. It's better if you don't get it out of your Rolodex of automatic responses. So you're you're with them. Uh, oh, and part of it is laugh. So it's sort of like half TED talk, half laughs. And it's because human beings are sort of funny, aren't they? So I can always find something ridiculous or, you know, about myself or about them um, to... See, they know. So all I have to do is somebody says something ridiculous. I'll do a bit of side eye. There's the laugh. It's sort of like, <laughs> it's very kind of, um, it's very kind of light like that. Yes. The other thing I have to do, because I rely so much on the audience, is I have to shut down the bore. Mm-hmm. 
this is this is really tricky. So you'll get someone there who hasn't got a question, but has got a statement to show how clever they are. And I'm I'm very, very quick to say, this is so interesting. I want it all to myself. Come and see me afterwards. They'll never find me afterwards. But <laughs> I, I just shut that right down it's because people have paid to see me or hear me. And so someone starts droning on. Yes. Yes, um, I think that's a fact. That's 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 fascinating to hear. A that that happens, and B that you've kind of uh, cultivated a solution for. I it. am really aware that the audience are there to be entertained. Okay, so I'm a psychotherapist, and they might want some learning or whatever, but um, I I just don't want to be boring ever. So if mm-hmm. somebody starts being boring when they're talking to me. Mm. Cut, cut it off cut it right down hopefully without shaming them yeah yeah that's, that's a good point good point um so tell me have you been in environments have you had to give talks to audiences who don't know who you are has that ever come up have you have you oh, all the time yeah so tell tell me about the difference in is there a difference in how you behave is it harder for you to engage that authentic part of yourself that just says welcome all comers let's surf on this when they aren't a group of your fans? when they're not my fans so yeah. say um i'm at a, a literary festival and um i'm i'm not against uh, somebody fabulous and famous so they go oh, i don't know what to do i can't like psychotherapy i'll go and see her so they don't know who i am mm-hmm. I obviously get my mindset as fabulous new people for me to talk to, you know. And when I'm on stage, I am completely me, but I just turn it up a bit. So I just Mm -hmm. turn up the energy a bit. Um, So, uh, yeah. Is that that harder to do? Is it like, do you need to do the thought experiment to yourself a little? more when you're walking a, onto an audience I, I have a thing like if you're going to have a fantasy about what somebody else or what an audience is like make it a good one and so I don't find it a bit harder because I don't know what they're like so I can fantasize about what they're like and I'll just think they are fabulous you know? <laughs> oh I see I, and I, I, and your your point about um your point about if you're going to have a fantasy is like you mean rather than that's kind of good self self therapy right yeah, that's good self talk yeah. because the, I I suppose what what I infer from that is that if we're waiting in the wings about to have what we think is a rough gig that is a fantasy because we don't yeah, know how it's going to be you don't know I understand that was the fantasy you were having that you were tweeting about that other people yes. were feeding like oh it's bad it's bad. Yeah, well, I mean, with all due respect to, to both of our abilities and both of our performance contexts, I would be fascinated to see how you have done in a rough pub in Taunton where oh, people aren't know, there to see you. Say you. a rough <laughs> pub in Taunton. Now you've mentioned the town. Yeah, I have. I mentioned it at the time. The and I just want to go. I just want to go. Yeah, give it to me. Mate, I'll see the, how I get the on. The landlord would absolutely love you to do a middle spot. <laughs> and I'll see if I a can work that spot. out for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, as someone, well, I mean, if you, if you feel comfortable headlining, I'll try and broker that. No, but, it's all right. Taunton's far too far. I have a little rule about the M25. It has to be a massive gig. <laughs> it has to be a massive gig to get me off home turf. For sure. Okay. Well, let's let's come back to this idea of your yourself because I'm really interested in the difference between the the self that you are when you're speaking to a client when you're in your psychotherapist yeah. self, um, and the self that you are when you're writing, and the self that you are when you're performing and your actual self, not in any of those contexts. Now, obviously you are a, a big personality 
I think that's sort of fair to say. You're sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've just proved my point. Very good. Do you know what I mean? You are you are one of those people who is like it makes sense that you're well known because I think if you weren't well known, if you worked in an industry that doesn't that didn't involve any kind of fame in it, people would know you in your village or in your town. I do. I do work in an industry where there's no sort of fame in it. There's not that many famous psychotherapists. Okay. I mean, there might be famous for what they write. I mean, in this country, it's Susie Allbach and me. She does work okay. on Radio 4 and stuff. She's a fantastic psychoanalyst. Okay. Um, but if you ask, who have you heard of in the psychotherapy world who's still alive and working in yeah. this country? It's probably her and me. Working work that old still alive angle. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just... So, so, so you, but you see what I mean? Like you're, you're, a, you're a personality. Well, that's very sweet. Thank you. So talk to me about when... You want to know who I am within it. You know, I think I am, I hope, the same person. Um, Obviously, if I'm in a client situation, I shut the fuck up. Because it's not for me to shine, it's for the client to shine. Sure. But I'm still myself, but I'm... It's their stage. I'm their audience. I'm reacting to them. But the uh, but when I'm on stage, the audience is reacting to me. Yeah. Maybe it's after all those many, many hundreds and hundreds of hours I've had to shut up. I've kept <laughs> it all in. I just can't wait to get on stage to have a dump on them. <laughs> There's the clip for the trailer. Um, <laughs> um, so this, this begs the question... Um, well, for me, it begs the question, sort of who, like the first question I thought when you were saying that is, who is Philippa Perry if she shuts the fuck up? Do you know what I mean? Because like this, those parts of you that are big, the parts of you that are, that we sort of warmly respond to as you're, you're charismatic, you're sort of certain of yourself, all of those kind of things. Yeah, well, it's nice that you look abashed there. I could say that to a comedian, they won't blink. But, uh, <laughs> you know, all these positive qualities that you have. When you're in kind of listening mode, does it feel different to you? Does it feel like you're just you, you're the same person, but you're listening? No, it, or feels, does it, feel like... it doesn't feel different. It just okay. feels like... I'm really interested. I want to know about this person. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know what their belief systems are. Um, so I've got antennae out all over mm-hmm. the place, like a radio receiver trying to pick up the signals. And I'm picking up the nonverbal cues, the verbal cues, the smell of them, everything. And I think when I'm with an audience, it's not that different. Mm-hmm. I want to, you know, sniff out the audience in a way. I want to mm-hmm. find out who they are. When you began your career as a psychotherapist, did you, like, what have you, in terms of aerials and antenna, yeah. which of those were innate and which of those were learnt along the way? Oh, they just got bigger with practice. Okay. They got so big with practice that... Um, you know, after working for about 15 years or so, I could sit on the bus next to someone and I could feel the depression coming off them. Not because they were looking like a stock photo of holding their head in their hands. They might just look perfectly normal, but I'd pick up the vibe. Mm. I'd usually change seats, to be honest. I mean, if I'm not being paid, fuck it. But um... <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, nobody is it's, it would be intrusive for me to say, I know you're depressed. It would freak them out. So I yeah. don't. But um, I can do 
because of the antennae, I've got some super magic powers. I can tell when someone's pregnant. No. Yes. Because how? Just magically. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I've sat with a lot, a lot of women, a lot of men as well, come to therapy with their first quarter life crisis, and it's a time okay. when people get pregnant, isn't it? So um, I'm sort of used to sitting with someone and then them telling you're the first person I'm told, but I'm pregnant. So I guess I unconsciously learned what the signals are, even though I couldn't say it. Okay, what what are what are the other sorts of superpowers you were saying? Those kind of things. Oh, I'm I absolutely can just pick up. You know, you you've got them as well. You go into a room and you can pick up the atmosphere. I've just got that, but maybe turned up a bit because of sitting in the chair opposite people, listening to them. Mm-hmm. If you do that all day, every day for decades, obviously your attuning gets fine tuned. Hmm. Hmm. And that's just any therapist. That's not just me. That's yes. any therapist. I've been in supervision groups with, you know, experienced therapists. And some of them have got even more magical superpowers. It's absolutely spooky. Do you ever find yourself in a group of therapists where there's just kind of a hum of you all listening to each other at the same time? Yeah, kind we're of... all interrupting each other. <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk. Me, me, me. Well, but I was going to ask, what are the what are the downsides of it? What are the... Um, you know, super superpowers, as we know from popular culture, often come with a price. What are some of the downsides of, uh, of those? Well, like of those I say, you, you're in your own little world on the bus and you're sitting next to someone yeah. and you think, oh, God, they're depressed. So if you don't put your antennae in and they're still up, you can get yeah. a little bit crowded. Yes, you know? OK. You can get okay. overwhelmed. Uh, I'm just and thinking so of, I'm in a I'm sorry. in a little cottage at the moment, just so I can have like four or five days on my own by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like a sort of like come back, come back to me. Yes, fans of, the X, fans of the X Men. Uh, will, fans of the X Men movies and comics will be knowing that this is what Professor Xavier does because he has oh, really? these incredible <laughs> mental powers and is sort of crowded out. He can hear the thoughts of everyone on the world and has to go away and calm down for a bit. Well, so it sounds sort of a bit empathy. like that. I cannot yeah. <laughs> hear people's thoughts. I cannot mind read. I can just pick up on a mood. I can pick up if someone's a bit poorly, that sort of thing. Mm. And what happens, I'm just sort of wondering about the parallels between... Um, like I'm, I often I think within comedy I'm regarded as a, I think I was described once for the, in terms of the podcast as uh, an untrained man attempting psychotherapy with no regard for the consequences. Oh, <laughs> Which great! I, Good for yeah. you. <laughs> I mean, I'm aware of sort of the ethical things, and I, I, yeah. I do try to make sure I, I don't cross any of those lines. But I think that the differences for me in between the me I am, like I sometimes will do, you know, promotional interviews for things, and they'll ask, I'll be in comedy mode where the job is don't answer the question questions be funny and then they'll ask me a question about the podcast and it'll kind of kick me back into thoughtful me and then i'll give them a long thoughtful answer and then i'll suddenly go oh god i haven't been funny do you mean so this is philippa what a joy it is to talk to her and uh thank you once again to philippa for coming on you can follow philippa uh, at philippa underscore perry you can check out uh, her profile in the guardian which has got links to lots of uh, her columns and you can also find the book you wish your parents had read uh, also how to stay sane and indeed couch fiction uh, at all good bookshops or if you absolutely must 
Amazon. Um, we'll get back into the interview in just a second. Just a reminder, there's 20-something minutes of extra stuff all available to you if you're a member of the Insiders Club, like the following recent join joiners, joinees, uh, Adam, Alexander, um, Alex. Wow, these aren't even alphabetized. That's just random. Uh, also, Daryl, welcome to David. Well, well, that's very generous, David. Thank you. Welcome to Justina. Um, and welcome, I see, to Justina again. And I suspect I'm going to have to get in touch with Justina and uh, and tell her that she's accidentally joined twice. Um, David and Mark and Kyle have all joined in the last month. So hello to all of you. Great to have you on board. Um, all of those people now have access not just to the Slack workspace, uh, where we can jointly strategize about what happens next with the podcast, but also all of the extra content from all the shows that have it. And indeed, they get ad-free episodes. Hark at them. So um, we'll get back to Philippa in just a second. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you at the end of the episode, we'll do a little post-amble, uh, which if you're a new listener is uh, just sort of, it's like a preamble, but at the end. And um, I'll be telling you about my life, specifically the exciting thing that I did in Estonia last week, which has had me bouncing around with merriment and the difficulties I had uh, returning to the UK due to not having done my homework, re-COVID locator forms and all sorts. But uh, we'll get into that in a bit. Um, for now, you can email me, info at comedianscomedian.com, uh, and you can follow the socials at ComComPod. And do us a favour, every time you uh, go on Twitter, just check in at ComComPod and see... If, I mean, that's unlikely, isn't it? That's not how people use social media. My point is, every week when I release an episode, I now do a nice little uh, social clip with a couple of seconds of audio and a nice little... Um, a visual thing and i pin that to the top of twitter.com slash comcompod so as no one describes their, their their twitter page so uh if you are a twitter user just do me a favor and retweet those because uh i keep forgetting to ask people and i get about nine retweets and then i ask and i get hundreds so uh thank you very much if you're uh retweet squad that's very much appreciated right let's get back oh hello martha as well hi martha um let's get back to philippa Perry. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. thing is about comedy for me when it really works is when you're not just funny um and so you've got all things going on you can be sad you can be sincere and you can be funny and I think when you are real then you can be funny I think if you push down all those other moods how can you how can you not push down comedy as well I think if someone is just trying to be funny, they're fucking tragic, aren't they? Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to be funny when they're not just being themselves naturally. Oh, God, I can't bear trying to be funny. Like someone that tells a joke to break the ice at a in a pub meet or something. Like, shut up! No! <laughs> Don't try and make me laugh. Let's laugh 
together when something comes up, you know. And I don't go into gigs thinking I want everybody to have a laugh. I go into gigs to say I want everybody to have their feelings and make connections. And it just so happens laughter is the best way to know that you've made a connection. That and crying, I don't, I don't mind which I get, really. <laughs> okay, okay. Crying's great because that means you've, you've hit something that resonates. Laughter is the same thing. An orgasm is the same thing. It's a sort of bodily reaction that means, yes, we've got there. So let's talk a bit about um, just while we're on kind of your your self and the different selves that you have, which sound very much like the one self. I love all this attention on me. It's fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of... Like you talk in you talk in um, in the book you wish your parents had read, uh, which is the title of the book. Otherwise, it's a very confusing sentence. Um, you talk about having an authentic relationship with your child and being unafraid to if you're tired and bored at the play park, rather than make up an excuse as to why you have to go home that protects you. You actually admit to your child, "I'm tired and bored. Let's go home." Yeah. So, so. That doesn't mean that's not un, that's not completely unfiltered. It's not an authenticity whereby you just say completely what's on your mind. So yeah. I'm interested in the sort of the decisions that go into that kind of um, not just in terms of your child, but in terms of your your audience for your books. You know, you must be selecting which parts of yourselves to share rather than simply sharing everything you've felt and thought and experienced. My filter is do not shame the other. And, you know, and obviously sometimes it's faulty. Obviously sometimes I get that wrong. Um, don't shame the other. Don't bore the other. That's about it, really. I think all comedians, uh, and I'm not saying all comedians, I think in the future we will look back and go, oh, yes, comedy is one of those jobs that ADHD people navigated towards um, because it's just full of constant novelty and, uh, it, you know, it solves lots of the issues of executive function and it's executive dysfunction. You, you can go off on tangents and, and yeah. that's apparently fine. Yes, yeah. you're rewarded. You're rewarded for picking things up and yeah. ideas and thinking about all the rest of it. So yeah, that's interesting that you are, you are you diagnosed ADHD or is it? No, is it self-diagnosed. Ah, well, you're probably allowed. <laughs> I, <would imagine. laughs> there comes a, I think a lot of comedians are self-diagnosed ADHD. Um, self-diagnosed. And I, I'm not a keen, a keen um, exponent. That's not the right word. I'm not a keen um, flag bearer for diagnoses in general. Because okay. I think if you diagnose someone as bipolar or ADHD or something, they tend to put themselves in a box and don't listen to their own unique experience of being alive. They love it because, oh, this explains it. I'm like this. But I think don't put a full stop on yourself like that. You know, we're continually evolving. Okay. And, and you know, we're, we're a verb. We're not a noun. So don't, don't give yourself a noun to, to um, hide behind. That's very interesting. Yes. I mean, I haven't, I, 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 I feel like I tick a lot of the ADHD boxes in a way that like enough of them that your wife would laugh out loud at you whilst ticking the boxes going, oh my God, apparently, oh look, I've wandered off in the middle of ticking the boxes and now I'm standing in the kitchen looking at a thing and then remembering a song and then doing something else. Um, but uh, top cat, <laughs> the cat is now distracting both of us in a legitimate way. But I think um, I, I haven't had a diagnosis because I thought to myself, well, why don't I just skip straight to the 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 sort of life hacks and the the ways of thinking and the little tips and tricks that you can, there's loads of resources out there. So why do you need the diagnosis? Just skip to the resources. Yeah. And um, so long as you have got some sort of concentration, that's fine. You know, and I can, I can spend all day reading a book, so it's not yeah. terrible. 
Mm -hmm. So, so talking about your, yourself and your personality and how much of it you share, do you choose which bits to disclose? Are there, are there things in your life that you wouldn't put in books or, or, or talk about? Yeah. Um, I think there's such a thing as uh, TMI, you know, I'm not going to share the, um, you know, the minutiae of my sex life or anything like that. Or, you know, my my husband isn't with me at the moment. We do text about our bowel movements, you know, how's yours, how's mine. But that's kind of a private conversation that I wouldn't broadcast. I mean, I might tell you I'm having that sort of conversation, but I'm not going to give you the content of it. You'd probably be quite glad about that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that is different from a comedian who I think where like there are there will be numerous relationship conversations between comedians where they go, I'm talking about this deeply private thing of ours. I've worked it up now. It's definitely getting laughs. It's probably going to pay the mortgage for a bit. Might be the Apollo clip. Is it OK if I mention it? Can I have retrospective permission? I think that's yeah, a thing that goes on. Yeah. So so privacy is one then. So your personal and other, privacy. Uh, other people's privacy as well. So obviously... Um, I'm married to a famous person and people want to know everything about him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would go, uh, if you want to know that, ask him, not me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about him. So that is another little boundary I've got going. Mm-hmm. How does, Main, it, how does Mainly it... because I want the focus on me. Well, this not... is it. I'm interested because a lot of, I mean, there are lots of comics who are in relationships with other comics and you see people's tracks kind of, this is the famous person, this is the, fo- oh no, they've become sort of, you yeah, know, yeah. they've got the sort of strategy. As someone who is a big personality, um, do, are you, what, is there an effect to you on the fact that you are married to a famous person? Is it ever, are, are you ever envious of the limelight? say or is that not not I was I was hugely envious of it um um, in about 2007 he won the Turner Prize in 2003 and his trajectory went so pre in 2002 if we two walked into a room we both had to work equally hard to get any attention or to (laughs) have good conversations or find connections with people yeah um after uh, he became famous uh, what happened is everybody would gravitate towards me and I'd have to work twice as hard to have any sort of decent connection with someone in a in a party or something like that and I got fed up with it because I just thought I do great work but it's all behind closed doors so I wrote a graphic novel of and this was directly in response to my narcissistic injury of him getting more attention to, than me so I wrote a graphic novel of what I do at work and how I do it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's funny because I'm a bit funny. Um, and that graphic novel was like a calling card to getting better known. I didn't mean it like that. I just want to say, look, this is what I do. This is my work. I'm good at it, too. And I wasn't that good at it, actually. And I, I realized when I wrote that book how many flaws I did have as a psychotherapist. And that's what's funny about the book is all the mistakes the therapist makes. Oh, poor woman. But it was me. I mean, you make mistakes as a therapist all the time, but you're still good enough. Maybe sometimes. So that's what that book is called Couch Fiction, because it's like pulp fiction, only with more sitting down. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nice, nice tagline. Um, Yeah, that's one of my Filofax jokes, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so that happened. And then people read it and it, it was uh, it, it sold well. And um, I was asked to do things. And I thought, oh, this is quite nice. I quite like it. I like this attention. You know, I started doing public speaking then. Okay. And then um, I wrote another book called How to Stay Sane. And then oh, that was fantastic because five of us published a book in this series all at the same time. And I said I was lonely when I went on tour with Couch Fiction. If I'm going to write another book, I want to go on tour with the same bunch of people so we all get to know each other and I'm not lonely. So we went round Britain and Northern Europe on a little charabang and, oh, my God, we had fun. And it was a sort of philosophical series. So we had very intense um, breakfasts. <laughs> when we were sober and sort of analysed the world and life, it was absolutely fantastic. That sounds like the material for the follow-up book, the intense breakfast. Oh, it was breakfasts. fabulous. It was fabulous. We were, uh, I was on tour with Roman Kisnarik, uh, John Paul Flintoff, Alan de Botton, John Armstrong and Tom Chatfield. Five blokes and me. Oh, I had such fun. They were all half my age, obviously. But... Um, I had such fun on that tour. Is is there is there an element to which you sort of said at the, at the top of this bit? You you said it was about your narcissistic. Um, what was injury. the phrase you used? Your narcissistic yeah. injury. Yeah, my, if, my narcissistic injury, which was obviously not getting enough attention as a child, so I had to show off. Yeah. And then secondly, um, it was fine when me and my husband were equal, but when he started getting more attention than me. The narcissistic injury flared up again. Yeah. So to get it better, I needed more attention. So I wrote books and then I went on tour with them. And then I felt great again. And is that, is that, that's one of the solutions. Is that the most healthy solution? Because if someone is in that position and writes a book that then you, they weren't fortunate or skilled or talented perhaps enough for it to become successful, then it fails. Like, are you sort of feeding the beast if the narcissistic injury makes you do something in the world of celebrity that is successful? Is, is that, does that cure the narcissistic injury or does it simply put a, a sticking plaster on it? Oh, it's just a sticking plaster. Obviously, I'm always, I'm not, you know, always greedy for attention. Um, yeah, it's a sticking plaster, uh, but it's a good one. Smells nice. Is it? It seems it suddenly seems strange to me that someone who has this desire for attention and is a funny person and is a sort of confident sort of big personality person would go into a listening profession in the first place. Like why? What made you want to become a psychotherapist? Oh, if, God. If you... I, I just wanted to understand what human beings were like. So, um when I first came to London, I found the St. John's Wood Library that's got a massive psychological section. I used to just sit there all day and read. And I had, you know, I'm an, uh, I was at art school and um, I was, um, you know, painting pictures and stuff. But um, this is where my real interest was. And I thought I could never, ever be a psychoanalyst. I just thought I can't do it. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Um, but I, I got to such a stage in my reading that to find out more, I had to sort of play with real humans. I suppose it was like a bit of an obsession, really, to find out what humans are like and how they work. And I've still got that obsession, luckily. You know, it still sort of drives me. Um, obviously, the learning curve has flattened a bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love it. 
um, I can sort of remember when I decided to be a psychotherapist, it was sort of like a relief because I'd been fighting it for so long. Okay. And it was a bit like a sort of coming home. And, um, yeah, I loved it. Um, maybe basically because we very rarely share our inner, inner, inner lives, a part of me was lonely until I got to know about other people's inner, inner, inner lives. And a bit of the narcissist in me would, when someone was talking, I wouldn't say out loud, but I'd go, oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> um, maybe it was... You know, it's it's connecting with someone on a deep level, which I felt had been missing in my life. And I didn't really know how to do it because, um, you know, my parents are very lovely and everything. But they were sort of like. Not what you call deep thinkers, they were sort of they role played their life brilliantly, but I felt sort of lost in there. What, what does that mean? They role played their life. That's fascinating. I don't know quite what you mean. You don't know what I mean. You've probably been brought up with authentic, wonderful people who, well, we've got a culture and a culture tells you who you should be. So it will tell you as a man that you've got to be strong, manly, a provider, know everything, be certain and look after the ladies. And as a woman, uh, my mother must always be nice, always be kind, don't upset anyone prepare lovely food, um, mother children. You, you get these sort of roles from society and you go on these tram lines and you can unthink and unthinkingly be just become these people. And I think it suited my parents very much to become the people along the tram lines. But okay. if you're given a set of tram lines and it doesn't fit you, it's quite difficult to break out. So that's, I th and, and in those tram lines, when you're just role playing along, this is what a man is like in society. My, my dad was very funny. You know, he was a, you know, he's a great, he was, he's dead. He was a great bloke, as it were, but he couldn't connect on someone, you know, on a, on a unusual level with, with, you know, comedy is all about observations that you make that other people haven't made. He couldn't make those observations. My mother couldn't make those observations. And if I made those observations, I had no one to share them with. And so I sort of grew up as a sort of lonely child until I discovered psychology that made me feel, oh, I'm not a freak. Someone could understand me. Maybe if I went into psychoanalysis, which, of course, I've done lots of, which is fantastic. I mean, it wasn't at first. Therapy is fucking awful because it's so hard to find a therapist. Like my mm -hmm. first three therapists were shit. But I thought it was me. And my training therapist was particularly bad. I can say that now because he died of COVID. He was particularly bad. Um. Uh, he was, oh, God, he said things like, you'd be all right if you basically conformed. And yeah. it was like, Ugh! but because he was my training therapist, you have to stay like 
for 400 hours with the same therapist because of the rules of this particular institute. And uh, I just stuck it out. But then I got the most beautiful psychoanalyst after I'd qualified as a psychotherapist. Then I had some proper therapy. So, so just because I don't understand too much about the, the, the sort of systems and procedures and what have you, this first guy, your training psychotherapist, that was, was someone... was actually my third, but Okay, yeah. I beg your pardon. So this, but this particularly bad one, you had to be therapised by him yeah. f- for 400 hours. Yeah. Knowing the whole time that you didn't agree with anything he said or any of his insights or opinions shit. or anything. He made me feel terrible. Oh, because that's something like there are people in my life who I'm constantly going, hey, you, I really like I'm a big zealot for therapy. I love it. I've been in and out of sort of different types of therapy yeah. for a long time. And, and in a way that uh, has enormously kind of broadened my sense of the world and myself and all those things. Um, and, and I'm on a real listeners will know I'm on a real upswing at the minute. Oh, <laughs> like, really I, I probably I probably overshare. So I had a session this week, guys. I probably oh, overshare good. that. Tell me about bit. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will. I will in a sec. We'll get to that. So there are people in my life who are... Um, who I would love to, you know, you spend a lot of time sort of evangelizing therapy, trying not to be too much, trying not to sound like you're a crazy yeah. person going, hey, you should do this too. And then if they do take the plunge and their first experience of it is negative or is with someone who doesn't, who may be perfectly good, but doesn't suit them, doesn't match yeah. them, then all of that hard work is undone. And it is the biggest tragedy, I think, of, yeah. I mean, there's lots of tragedies, but it's one of the biggest tragedies personal to me that some people in my life very close to me could be leading, could have led and now be leading much happier lives yeah. if they were able to engage with someone who understood them well enough. It's like when you see a dear friend if you see them sort of driving around in an ailing car that's kind of sparks are coming out of the place and they're furious and it's not getting anywhere and the fuel economy's knackered and there's smoke and you're just like you can fix your car you can buy a new one you can buy a new one or maybe if not buy a new one you can you can work hard to replace all the individual bits or walk get out of the thing exactly this vehicle isn't working for you i find it so frustrating uh yeah it is it is really hard and uh, obviously um Loads of people says, come to me and go. Uh, I, I I went to you know the the register of psychotherapists and I, I I got one and they were terrible. How do I find a good therapist? And I think you have to try on a few, a bit like shoes. You don't go for the first pair, do you? No, mm-hmm. you try on. You you buy the most good looking and the most comfortable one, comfortable pair. And I think uh, with therapists you need to. Look at all the registers. Look at the qualifications. Sure, but actually, qualifications mean shit. I used to be on an examining board. We passed some terrible people uh, because they ticked all the boxes, but yeah. something was definitely missing. But I couldn't logistically. I mean, not logistically. Uh, I couldn't find a way of failing yeah. them other gotcha. than I don't like them. Doesn't yeah. really cut it. So, so in your in that part of your, you had to do these four hundred hours with someone terrible, and then you found someone terrible brilliant. for me. Terrible, terrible for you, for sure. Maybe not for someone else, but terrible what, for me. Yeah. What effect does four hundred hours of bad therapy have on a person? Is that like like do you is there is there well, a risk? What's four hundred multiplied by sixty pounds? Yeah, okay, that's an effect for sure. <laughs> and then there's the sort of like. Um, I mean, I think he t- he told me once that I was like Teflon because he couldn't get in. I thought, no, you can't. Yeah. Um. So it's it might just build up my defences a little bit more, yes. make me a bit more closed in rather than a bit more open. And is it because is it if possible- you don't feel all right, if you don't feel I'm all right, 
you hide yourself, which mm. is not great for being in the world and sharing your brilliance. But if someone says, you're all right, let's just get rid of the neurosis and just you're fundamentally you, that's great. If a therapist is bad, they'll give you more neurosis rather than um, to take away your neurosis so you can be yourself. So for you, the journey into, into psychotherapy was about wanting to understand people and... Your... Well, myself, really. Nobody yes. goes into therapy because they're perfectly mentally well-adjusted, because they're not interested enough. So, um, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was just clumsy in company and self-conscious and thought I was either terrific or terrible rather than thinking I'm just okay you know all the normal neuroses and yeah that's what gets you into it I think being a bit neurotic and you wanted more of a an authentic connection to your parents I wanted an authentic connection with anyone yeah and Um, when did you when did you I never really had an authentic connection with my parents I could only connect with them in their bubble of the Venn diagram. They never overlapped into my bubble. So I did all the moving to connect with them. So, for instance, one Christmas, my husband gave me a pair of Crocs. We're very pro-Croc in our family. And uh, my mother was absolutely horrified. And she said, you can't wear those in London. And the 16-year-old me um, the pre-therapy me starts rising up and going, yes, I can, you know, you know, combative. But I have to move to her if I'm going to have any connections. So I go, oh, mum, you think it's the 1950s, don't you? And everybody's wearing Dior new look dresses. And you see me come, going into a cocktail party wearing orange Crocs and everybody else looking askance at me. And she went, yes. So that's how we had connections by me imagining what it's like for her. But she never replayed the compliment of imagining what it's like for me. Yes. Yes. God, that's a really good way of dealing with things. There's a thing of, there's a, an, from one of your books, from the, um, the book you wish your parents had read, I, was, I really tried to do it to my son yesterday. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And the five-year-old was furious with me because we had played, we've been playing the Powerpuff Girls computer game app on my phone, right? Loves the Powerpuff Girls. I'm going to download that. It's a banger. (laughs) But um, we were playing it together. And then when I was out of the house, if I was stuck on a train or whatever, a tube, I would would play it for five minutes. And he didn't know. And I wasn't concealing it from him, but I hadn't told him. And so this thing grew, this thing grew whereby I brought it home one time and said, you're not going to believe this. I've unlocked Bubble. Like this is a good thing you can play as bubble now and he saw that i'd been playing it without him and although that had never been a rule he was furious and he had an absolute 90 minute meltdown half an hour into which i had to leave because i had to drive to a gig right so my wife then took the brunt of the meltdown and it was on the way to the gig i was listening to bits of the the audio book which i have of your um of the book you wish your parents had read and specifically that thing about um being being honest about what's going on and trying to put yourself in their shoes and see it from their point of view and so after he calmed down and so the next morning I brought it up a couple of days later and said what happened there I think was that you were really upset with me because we were we were doing a special thing and I kind of cheated by going off and do it on my own and I just kind of admitted it like we both knew that was what was going on but I hadn't admitted it right. and I kind of confessed to him and it was really good so thank you oh that's <laughs> lovely isn't that yeah. nice 
it sometimes you just have to find a way of saying my bad yeah like you did um and then we're all we're all meeting and we're on the we're on the level again we can connect again isn't that nice yes. i mean when i grew up my parents were never wrong about anything so yeah. that leaves you feeling less and less adequate so had you not made that repair by saying, actually, I can see why you were really upset. It was this, wasn't it? If you hadn't made that repair, he would have internalized me bad for having a meltdown. He would have internalized that. Yeah. Now he's justified in his feelings. And hopefully he'll find better ways of expressing them in the future. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, these things take time. We learn these things over time. So that's I... lovely. Thank you for telling me that. The, the skill that I would love to learn is to be able to do it in the moment. Do you know what I mean? That's well, that the thing, comes. to be able it to comes. admit something in the moment. For me, that sounds so difficult when I'm trying to get everyone, you know, classic thing, trying to get everyone out of the house. I'll say no to something because what I'm saying no from the perspective of let's hurry up and get on with it. And then one of them says, but look, you know, one of them it doesn't use these words. They're only small, but um, they will say something like, but look, it's perfectly reasonable for me to do this. Why don't I just do this little thing before we leave? And then I'm trapped because I've already said no. And if I climb down from it, then and I will look across and my wife will be raising her eyebrow at me. You've got some little rules going on there. Well, I'm supposed... You know what I mean? My instinct... Oh, I'll there's say, another rule. Another yeah. rule. You're supposed to... Wow, yes. you've got a lot of rules. Well, listen, my wife spends more time with the children than I do because I work more often. And uh, so she is... You know, like, I, I, if she's established a, a procedure for something, I try and respect that and honour that. Good, good. So... What I would say, no, you can't do this. They'll go, oh, but sure, I can. And my instinct is to climb down and go, oh, yeah, sure, you can. But then that will break the thing. The rule, her rule is, if you said no, you've got to stick with no and you okay. back it up to the hilt. You've got two separate relationships. You've got your wife's relationship with your children and your relationship with the children. They are allowed to be different. You are two different people. Okay. You know, she has her boundaries. You have your boundaries. And that is fine. And don't okay. worry about that. Don't worry about that little rule. Um, and uh, if it's, but mummy lets me, yeah, but mummy can stand it. I can't, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's sort of, it's sort okay. of um, daddy lets me stay up. Yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm really tired and I want to watch Newslight and I want to watch it alone. So you have to go to bed. <laughs> That's what I'd say. Okay, right. I'll, I'll, I'll report Daddy back. Daddy lets me have the sauce <laughs> and the pasta separately. Yeah, but I can't be bothered. Sorry, it's got to be like this. This does. Uh, there is. Uh, there is nothing more truth. authentic. There's nothing more authentic than saying to your child, "I can't be bothered." No, I can't be bothered <laughs> to make pasta all over again, so I don't. So I separate the sauce. I know children don't like their their food all mixed up and different tastes. My bad. Eat it or starve. One of the one of the things you talk about is the way that we weave a narrative around the events of our lives. And I'm fascinated with that because comedians do that. This podcast does that. Yeah. I'm forever saying to comics, you know, I love finding out people's origin stories as if they're, you know, that's kind of superhero parlance. What's your origin story? I spoke to the brilliant Harriet Kemsley recently, fabulous comic. And she is the only comic I've known in 380 plus interviews um, who said like she's she has dyspraxia. She often would be clumsy and make mistakes with things and had concussion three times before she was a teenager, that kind of thing. And um 
and she said that she was watching Live at the Apollo with her parents and they said, you should do that. You should be a comedian. That seems like a good way to turn making mistakes and you'd like to embrace it. You'd be really good at that. What lovely and parents. What lovely parents. And what an incredible, totally unique origin story. So these things. And what a lovely, you could do this. You could stand up on that stage and talk to a thousand yeah. people. Yeah. Lovely. So in terms of those narratives that we make about our lives, like I cannot help narrativizing. I can't help kind of. We all do. Yeah. For me, there's something something about. That's that's what human beings do. We make stories up all the time. We exist in our stories. It must be very satisfying to have the effect that you have on something so important to people as their parenting. Like to, you know, most of the people I talk to on this show are up there getting laughs out of people. And it's kind of dumb if you think that you're changing culture. In most cases, some people are genuinely having an effect on things. But a lot of the time, it's really kind of capitalism and self-involvement dressed up as entertainment, you know, whereas... Whereas what you, and certainly with this with this podcast, the the emails I get, the kind of you've changed my life emails I occasionally am happy and lucky to receive from this podcast are much more of a big deal to me than the buzz of an incredible gig that mm. that sort of wears off a lot faster. I'm just sort of wondering what your feelings are about that. You know, you you the area you work in, you must have changed a lot of lives, like really visibly changed people's lives. Well, the the life I really changed was my own. That's um, such a good answer. <laughs> That's such a. Uh, have you said that before? That's such a clever answer. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have or not. Um, you know what I said about I didn't know how to connect with people because I hadn't been connected with. So yeah. I had to find out how that was done, and I had to learn how to connect with my clients, and obviously then how to connect with my friends. Yeah. You all do it in different orders. And um, so I had learned through the uh, psychotherapy theory, psychoanalytic theory, philosophy, whatever, from reading in that St. John's Wood library quite a lot, how relationships are made, how relationships work, how relationships don't work. And after being a psychotherapist for about 20 years, you realize like most parents aren't bad, but if they just had one or two tools so that they can connect with their kids. Those kids won't need therapy. Mm. But if they don't, they're just going to pass down what's been done to them, which might not be terrible, like what was done to me wasn't terrible, but nor was it connection. So obviously I was neurotic. So I thought I'll put it in a book so that parents can understand. I'll, I'll take all the long words out. Psychoanalytic theory. Academics, honestly, when they write, they write for each other, which means it's in a different language, which means it's impenetrable to members of the public. I have suffered going through textbooks. I tell you, I have really suffered because they write really brilliant stuff in a most boring, impenetrable way. So I thought I'm going to make it accessible for people to read not going to do Harvard referencing, so everything's in brackets. No, I'm just going to make a, a book, not for my peers, but for the public. And I feel like it, all my life has been leading up to that book. So how to, how to connect and how to connect with the most important people in your life, which are your children. Mm. And uh, so that's why I wrote it. And the fact that it worked... And it has changed lives and people go, oh, my God, this is so easy. This is so simple. I only have to say 
we're leaving the playground because I'm bored rather than it's time for your lunch now. And I can be a real person and the kid can relate to a real person. And that's great. You're going to leave the playground anyway because you want to. So just be real about it and real about other things in an age appropriate way as well. It's just such a relief that the kid can have a real relationship with you. If I hear another person refer to themselves as daddy doesn't want to do that. I say I stop hiding behind daddy like you're some kind of furry bear. You're a human. Um, very last question. I ask this of everyone. Philippa Perry, are you happy? Most of the time, yeah. But I think happy gives you a sort of picture of someone that's going <laughs> and laughing all the time and seeing nothing but unicorns and, and flowers and uh, having orgasms nonstop. I'm sort of happy because I'm quite a lot of the time absorbed. And by absorbed, I mean I'm enthusiastic about something and I'm doing it. So that might be researching something. It might be making art. It might be having a conversation with this Stuart bloke. I, I just, oh, it's fun, isn't it? When you're in something, you're absorbed. And um, yeah, not bored is my um, definition of happy. That's a great definition. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Philip. I've really, really appreciate enjoyed it. talking to you. Honestly, I've done some podcasts and we've had nothing in common and it's been a bit orcs. Not this one. It's great. Those are mostly my podcasts, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my podcast. Oh, yes. Sip let's play. shout out your podcast, Siblings please. Siblings in Session on Audible. That okay. one's quite good. The first podcast I did was Families in Crisis, which is as grim as it sounds. It's Crikey. really grim. It's like... God, these people, ouch. Okay. Um, but it'll make you cry. Both of them will make you cry. Okay. Fantastic. You know, which is almost as good as laughter, isn't it? So that was Philippa. Do do yourself a favour. Do do yourself a favour and um, and read some of her books. I really enjoyed the book You Wish Your Parents Had Read. It, it is a wonderfully idios, it, idiosyncratic, isn't the word. What's the word? It's really um, uh, not particular. What's the word? It's like it, it's not bland advice. It's shot through with personality. That's my point. As you can imagine, listening to Philippa speak, you don't think she's going to write anything that's that's merely a how-to manual. But it's a really, really good book. I highly recommend that one. And I really enjoy her column in The Guardian, her Ask Philippa Agony Aunt column. You can uh, get extra content from this 25 minutes or thereabouts uh, if you join the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And you can go and visit her on Twitter. You can't visit her, but you can see what she's up to. And she's very funny on Twitter. So at Philippa underscore Perry. I imagine she has a website as well. My my various, you know, you Google someone's name. It doesn't always chuck up their website because you get their socials and their Wikipedia. And then by that point, um, or I should say the Wikipedia pertaining to them. And then by that point, I've written a few things down and then forgotten to check whether they've got a website. But she must do. I mean, if she doesn't have a website and you work for someone like Wix or Squarespace, why not get in touch with Philippa Perry <laughs> via, via the usual social media channels? So that's all of that. Thank you to Philippa once again for coming along. Thanks to you for listening and sharing and reviewing the episode, if you feel so bold, on whatever fascinating podcatching platform that you're listening to which you are listening it to on. That's not right, is it? I can never get those right. Um, 
but uh, uh, thank you once again. Thanks to Nathan Wood for producing the show. Thank you to Jake Crossland for logging it. Podcast consultant is Peter Dobbing, and the music was by Rob Smouton. Post-amble coming at you in a second. I've got three or four really fun interviews coming up, but I won't tell you anything about them until they are safely in the can, because this represents me now having an empty can. But lots in the diary, so plenty more to come. Speak to you soon. So this is the fun thing. This is the fun thing which I did in Estonia. So if you remember at the end of last week's episode with Pierre Novelli, um, which was an absolute corker, and thank you to Neil Peters for pointing out uh, online how excellent the extras from that are. They really are. If you're if you're a comic and you do corporate work, it, there are some interesting, or you aspire to, um, there are some interesting perspectives in there from the pair of us. Um, and uh, also, so this is the thing. So I did this gig in Estonia. Now, listen, when we talk about corporate comedy in the vast amount of my experience up until a couple of years ago, my relationship to businesses, to organisations was all based on me doing the awards ceremony. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'd host it. I'd do 10 or 15 minutes of stand up and then host a bunch of awards. And I like them and I'm good at them because I'm good at crowd control. The stand up element of that took a while to master and to get your heads round, to get your head round the situation where their heads aren't round it at all because they've not invested in it. And lots of the things which are usually true in a comedy club are not true in a kind of business environment. So there was my personal journey to get my head round, crikey, doing a 15 minute set to a completely different context than I'm used to. And they don't come up often enough in your junior years as a comic that you can get used to them. So it was sort of, they were few and far between and weird. But I got my head around them and I enjoy applying myself to a thing. So I very much enjoy doing those. And then, of course, the rest of it, like most of the time you spend on stage, is reading sometimes autocue or sometimes scripted stuff, reading out a huge volume of people's names that you've never heard before, trying to make the whole thing stick together coherently and trying to rattle through it and trying to remember throughout that you are responsible. Like, to you, there's a... You do have the opportunity as a comic to view it as like a sort of dirty, greasy corporate thing where you, it's a smash and grab where you take the money and run. Or you can think, oh, these people are having a nice night out and it's actually meaningful to them if they win the anaerobic digestion and biogas small provider of the year or whatever it is. It's important to people and some of the most there are some genuinely touching moments when people get sort of lifetime achievement awards and what have you now. The reason I say all this is because the thing I did in Estonia was a whole different thing again. I had to go to Estonia. I had to attend a tech conference for a company called SK Solutions who do kind of mobile online ID stuff, smart ID stuff. And incidentally, I oh, will get on to that. I'm going to tell you about how great the Estonian approach to the Internet is. It's genuinely brilliant and you should all become e-residents of Estonia. Um, so... I had to go to this conference, attend the conference. So they referred to me in the in the preamble to the conference as there is a spy among us, which felt very exciting. Um, and people from Estonia, Lithuania, and Lithuania. Oh, come on. I've fallen at the second hurdle there. Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania were in the room. And I watched panels on the Latvian banking system and a panel about... Um, uh, the relationship between neurotransmitters and the brain and putting chips in people's heads to help quadriplegic people use their limbs again. And then I watched another panel which was about phishing scams, phishing with a PH, and I learned the word phishing, which is where the phishing scam where they ring you up and it's voice phishing. Um, and I learned all this stuff, and then I had... And the whole while, I'm sat in the back of the room scribbling notes, and then I had to go up on stage and deliver my 25-minute comic summary of the conference. And it was so great! It was so great! I enjoyed everything about the experience. The gig was really fun. 
And I, I felt those joint things of those joint elements of I'm out of my comfort zone, but I have the appropriate skill set. So it's not terrifying. I've done gigs before when I've been really worried about them. And this wasn't one of those. But it really stretched me. It was really exciting to do. And um, it felt I felt more like a comedian doing it than I have done when you do, you know, 10 minutes after dinner as they're taking away the coffee and they're really wanting you to just, you know, do some ice-breaking stuff and then get on with the awards. It felt like being a comic. It felt like a proper challenge. And I realised it was what... Now, did I say this? I don't think I realised this at the time, so I can't have said this to you last week. It was what I wanted from Show Me the Funny. Do you remember that? If you're a, if you're a long term listener, you might it's come up once or twice. I did a show in 2010ish, um, which was supposedly MasterChef for comedians and turned out more to be like RuPaul's Drag Race for comedians, and which would have been fine if I'd known that's what I was going into. But I thought I was going into kind of MasterChef territory. But this was actually that. This was learning about stuff and the learning. That's the thing I was going to say before. Genuinely fascinating to learn so much stuff about other people's lives i think for someone who's purportedly an observational comedian i'm pretty insular i i wonder if you if you're a creative person how much time you spend absorbing things that aren't your particular bag do you know what i mean because i i often think if people go what are your specialist subjects i'm like all i've known is comedy and i don't know anything else what comics i guess sniper based video games heist movies it's the the blandest load of stuff. I like, I found a thing and I like it and I've just continued tunnelling into that thing. So to be, as I am increasingly now, as my my endeavours with, uh, you know, the resilience work that I do, the speaking stuff, as those um, bring me to new environments and new people, suddenly I'm meeting people who are working in wildly different areas and I'm sat there happy as Larry simultaneously because you know I get bored quickly I, I was thinking actually at the time would I have enjoyed it as much if I didn't have the constant ticking pressure of there's a funny thing it's interesting can you write a funny joke about it there's an interesting thing can you write a joke about that if I didn't have that would I still have enjoyed the conference I think I would because it was it was fascinating stuff but it particularly suits me to be doing something else as well while I'm listening hashtag busy brain hashtag no official diagnosis um so it was just great. I learned all this stuff and then I had the excitement about doing the gig and then I did the gig to a high standard and everybody enjoyed it in a very Estonian way whereby I came off knowing I'd done well. But it took a little while before anyone said that was good because they're all very kind of professional. <laughs> and I was thinking, I mean, I did do well, didn't I? But it, it went really well. I've had lovely feedback. So thank you to everyone involved with that. What a What a joyful thing that was. And then the end of that story really is that for all my highfalutin oh well the uh, the immediate end of that story is I, I went home and had to get up very early to fly the next day so I had about two hours to relax afterwards I drew a bath in my posh hotel and I can't sit in baths but I managed it for like I want to say 15 but probably more like 12 minutes before I got all bored and <laughs> had to get out again what do you even do in a bath I mean I don't say watch tv because I tried that um, I watched, oh, I watched um, the beginning of, I think it's Army of Thieves on Netflix, which I highly recommend. I don't want to spoil it, but there is a face for British comedy who I didn't, who's clearly a sort of lead part in it. I only got through the first half hour, but about 20 minutes in, suddenly person turns up. <laughs> I stood up out of the bath and went, yes, blood. It was great. And very satisfying and exciting to see that person. Um, and uh, uh, I... Had a, and this is where is this story going? I had a bath. Big news. No. So I, I then uh, went to bed and then the next morning I got up 
and I was a bit kind of like, whoa, crikey, I'm mega early. And then it turned out that I had misread or quickly I'd skimmed, I'd scanned the uh, the important government websites about COVID and Jesus Christ, I ended up in a queue for a flight that was leaving any second and a guy, three people in front of me, a German guy was kicking off and they were having an argument. It was, it was in Frankfurt. I did the first half to Frankfurt, it was fine. And then I was in Frankfurt and it was really like, oh, that plane looks like it's leaving any minute. I'm at the very end of the queue. Something's taking ages and it isn't being explained to the rest of us what's taking ages. So those four or five of us left over are kind of starting to flap a little bit. And then eventually they deal with it. They deal with it by the guy saying, effectively, body language, I could tell, oh, he's not going. He's not getting on the plane. He's saying goodbye to his friends and he's walking off in a huff. And then I, they said, where's this? We need this QR code, the passenger locator form. Now, I'd filled one in on the way there, and I thought that was the only one I needed. But of course, that's nonsense, because by the time you're in Frankfurt going to London, who cares where you've been in Estonia? And, well, obviously COVID people, so I, that was my mistake. So I did the fastest piece of phone use I think I've ever done. I made the flight. I thought I'd missed it. They told me I missed it. And then they came back and it was like a moment. Ah! I ended up getting on it as people burst into tears all around me because they were getting refused. Thank you to a lifetime of playing video games on my f- video games, a video games, B doing admin quickly uh, and C playing games like the brilliant Polytopia. There's a new tribe in the phone game Polytopia and it sucked me back in. It's absolutely brilliant and I hate it and I wish I could delete it, but I can't. It's great. But fastest finger first right i i uh i had you would not believe how quickly i logged onto the government website website filled in all the information realized i'd filled it in wrong filled it in again needed to upload a screen grab of a qr code from something else needed to upload a pin code from a like a registration code from a thing because you've got to send a when you come back into the uk you've got to do a covid test within two days and send it off and i had booked that in advance so i had a reference number and i think that's where the other people slipped up so I had to, like, download the QR code, open the QR code, screen grab the QR code, upload the file of the screen grabbed QR code to the thing. It's basically, there's a, vid, there's a computer game called, uh, like an app, called Space Team, in which is absolute riot. It's like a party game where you and several people, you're all on your phones, you have to do a sort of crazy Star Trek-type instructions, and it, like, switching dials and twiddling, switching switches and twiddling dials and knobs and levers and stuff, as you have, you have to do your own tasks while shouting other people's tasks to them. So it, it's designed to create chaos. But it's only through coping with those kind of environments that I did the thing, and the bloke couldn't believe it. I was like, there, I've got it, I've got it. And he was like, really? And he checked it, and it beeped. And then he told me I'd missed the plane. And I think because I didn't shout at him, I kind of went, oh, and then laughed at myself because I have the privilege of being able to be stuck in Frankfurt and work out an alternative route home or, you know, it's not. There were people crying who clearly were not in that situation or had more important stuff to do immediately and people relying on what have you. Um, So I was I was kind of nice and I was sort of genial and oh, God, I've messed up. And I don't know if that was anything to do with it, but they the lady ran back and said, no, it's OK, we can. We can, The bus hasn't gone yet. Get him on. And I ended up getting on the flight. Which is, I mean, you know, is that a good enough end of the story? Who knows? Maybe that, maybe that story was a sort of the journey. Are you still there? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't for a moment uh, blame you for bailing out of that one. It's not that exciting, but uh, it was exciting for me. And the moral of the story is... Hey, kid, make sure that you have read the government website, even if it like read it in detail and ignore the bit where it seems to suggest that if you are double vaccinated, you don't need to read any further because you do. Bye for now. (laughs) 